Thanks for listening to this podcast from Christ Church of Orinoco. Our hope is that it would help you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. Good morning, church. Let's open our Bibles to Mark chapter 9. If you're visiting us this, with us this morning, you're with uh, friends and family from out of town, we're gr- glad you're with us today. And uh, uh, we just welcome you and ask you to participate however you feel free this morning as you worship Jesus with us. We have been in a lengthy series. Uh, we began back in November 2016, taking the, the narratives from the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, putting them together in a chronological form. And uh, here we are today, the last Sunday uh, of 2018. My holidays ended on Friday. That's when the last piece of Christmas pie was eaten. And so I'm moving on. I'm over it, but I'm moving on. And uh, we hope that you've had a great celebration time with family and friends, and you've been encouraged in that. And uh, as we continue in this last week, we are actually looking at the beginning of the last week of Jesus' ministry. And this week is the most important week in the history of mankind, to be honest with you, because where all the promises and fulfillment of the promised Messiah take place. And yet you would think that in a moment as Jesus heads toward the last week of his earthly life, uh, before the resurrection, his last week of ministry, that you would think that his disciples would be tuned in and focused laser-like. We're going to find out today, uh, not so much. In Mark chapter 9, we're going to jump back a little bit to jump into our text in Mark 10. But in Mark chapter 9, this takes place, verse 33. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because of the way they had argued, because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the 12 and he said, if anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. You would have thought that that corrective moment would have set pace and that would have been the last time Jesus would have had to direct himself toward this, but it's not. Uh, Jump ahead with me to Mark chapter 10. Here they are again, the 12 men traveling with Jesus, and then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. Verse 38, you don't know what you're you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? We can, they answered. And Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Here we go again. Same conversation. The disciples approach Jesus and they want a favor. They want status. They want prestige. And Jesus is going to teach in this moment about the power of humility and the eventual devastation of pride. I want you to catch that. He's going to teach about that there's power in humility, and there's only an awaiting devastation when we live by pride. Pride is noted in Scripture as not a good thing. But let's be honest. We all have moments where we can be proud. Being proud of an accomplishment is not a bad thing. It's a natural thing. If your child comes to you and they've worked really hard and they've accomplished something, whether it's musical or athletic or social or academic, then they bring you that. There's a moment that you look at your kids and say, you should be really proud of that accomplishment. And that's not what the Bible's speaking against. The Bible is talking about a pride that makes you feel better than another human being. A pride that makes you feel uh, superior and treats another person made in the image of God as inferior. 
It's a pride that because you have resources or you've accomplished something that that makes you a better human being. I remember a class I had in Bible college a lifetime ago where one of the professors was speaking on pride and humility and he said, if you want to live with a good balance of humility in your life, act as if every competition you're in, you're competing against Jesus and that every accomplishment you've accomplished, he did too. And how would you feel about yourself? He said, live every day as if you're walking next to Jesus and you will have no comparison problems for the rest of your life. And he's right. And not to humiliate us, but humility comes from realizing that Jesus is the greatest, the most accomplished, and that he is not just perfect in such a way that I can't relate to him. He used his perfection to completely relate with me and show me who I am and his confidence in me. In Romans chapter 1, when Paul's defining how mankind slipped into sin, not slipped, but jumped, he says this in Romans 1. He gave, he gave them, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. And they have become filled with every kind of wickedness. And when listing every kind of wickedness, look what he included. They are arrogant and boastful. They feel superior. They feel accomplished. And they demean others. In 1 Timothy, the Bible says that pride comes from the devil and is the mark of a false teacher. In 1 John, pride is the characteristic of the world and alienates us from God because God resists the proud. One of my favorite quotes of all time, I found this in the early 80s and it made my heart happy, made my tail wag. And it's, it's addressing the issue of our arrogance and our pride. It says, no matter how big you get, the size of your funeral depends on the weather. <laughs> if you hear nothing else today, go home richly filled with that. James 4, 6 says, God gives grace to the humble and he resists the proud. Micah chapter 6, verse 8, one of the most powerful defining passages of Scripture. If you want to know what God wants with and from you, Micah 6, 8 is it. What does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? Try not to be a good person. Then if you, if you want, don't want to be a good person, don't do what's right. Don't care about other people in the process. And walk to point out your own power. But if you want to live the good life, then we know what it is. Walk, do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly. You see, in the Old Testament, there were seven things that God hates. Proverbs chapter 6, it begins with pride. It's the foundation of all sin. See, these disciples love Jesus. Don't doubt that. They love his truth. Don't doubt that. They believe in him and his kingdom. They're actually believing that his glory will come, and they want in on it. So there's nothing wrong with that. The Holy Spirit has been on them, and yet they still struggle with pride. It's a natural response. It's just not always a beneficial one. They know his glory is coming, but they don't understand. The multiple times he's told them, his glory will come upon his death, and they couldn't hear that because they thought his glory would come with power and with might and with opportunity, and so they were excited about this, and they thought, well, when Jesus comes, he's going to establish his authority, and we want in on that. We've been with him from the beginning. We kind of have earned the right to make this request, and so they do. But if they'd have paid attention to their Old Testament, they would have understood that any time God went to a human being and asked them to be a part of his plan, their response was not, I gotcha. Their response was always, What? Look at Abraham. I'm going to make you a great nation. He's like, me? Look at Moses. You're going to go talk to Pharaoh. And he said, who am I to talk? You see Jacob. He wrestles with God and he cries out, I'm unworthy. 
Isaiah tore his clothes and fell on his face in the presence of the glory of God, realizing who he was. He said, I am a sinful man and deserve to die. Gideon, one of my favorite Old Testament stories, is hiding out from the enemy, and an angel appears to him, and Gideon says, I am the worst of the worst. I'm the least of all the people in God's nation. That's the reality attitude we ought to have. That instead of saying to God, I can help you, we hear God's request and we think, me? And it's not a false humility. Remember, if you're walking with Jesus and you understand all that he brings and all that we don't, there's a power in humility and there's only failure awaiting us in pride. But the world doesn't see it that way. And I'm not going to trash culture. I'm just going to tell you the truth. The Bible teaches us that the cultures in which we live do not promote what the kingdom promotes. And Jesus is pointing this out, that there's a power in humility if we trust him, but there's only the arrogance of pride that will fail us if we don't. You see, looking at this story, you can see how you find greatness in the world. If you want greatness in this world, it will reveal selfish ambition. Verse 35, they simply said, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. But notice that, we want you to do it for us, not for others. It's not a noble task. They're not asking Jesus to do something that will bless everybody. They're simply pulled away. In fact, two of the 12 have pulled away. So they don't even care about the other 10. They're just like, we need to shotgun those seats right now if we're going to get them. And Jesus is like, huh. And then Matthew tells us in Matthew chapter 20 that it wasn't just James and John. It was their mother. Their mom showed up and said, Jesus, can I ask a favor? Would you take care of my babies? This might be the first helicopter parent in all of Scripture. And there she is hovering. And then we learn something even better, and that is she's Jesus' aunt. She's the sister of Mary, the mother of Jesus. Matthew points that out, that there's three women at the foot of the cross when Jesus is giving his life for each one of us. There's Mary, the mother of Jesus. There's Mary Magdalene. And there's this woman named Salome, who's Mary's sister. And that's John and James' mom. She's playing the family card. She's saying, I know these other 10 are important, but this is family, Jesus. You, you need to help us out. You, you need to give them importance. And Jesus is like, okay. He says, what do you want me to do for you? But I want you to realize that that question is beautiful because Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? And he doesn't ask the other part that in our culture we always ask, what do you want me to do for you? And then what are you going to do for me? If I scratch your back, then I expect a long scratch back. And so this is that moment where Jesus doesn't even play. He sees their selfish ambition and he calls it out to them. What do you want me to do for you? Tell me what it is. And of course, they're children by saying, just promise before we even ask, promise. Probably every kid's tried that on their parents and every kid got the same answer. Absolutely not. Tell me what you want. You see, their selfish ambition comes out. And if you want to, let's be honest, if you want to make your way in this world, be selfish and ambitious. You'll make the front page of People magazine and New York Times will talk about you and you probably get elected to office and you'll have control and you'll do whatever it takes to get you there and it'll cost a lot of people who didn't do anything wrong to you a lot of wrong because success in our world is rewarded by selfish ambition. In fact, I always loved it as a kid when they would see two people on a ball team or someone going off on the bench in a football game and the announcers would say, oh, look how competitive he is. I used to be... When I acted that way, it was called being a poor sport. But today, now, no, no, whatever it takes to win, whatever it takes, do what you got to do. It's what the world rewards. And Jesus is like, nah, I don't think so. There's more power in humility. 
So it also reveals an arrogant overconfidence. That they want what they want and they're not sure what it takes to get there. They actually believed in his kingdom was coming. They believed in his reign. And Jesus says, do you know what you're asking for? Do you understand what you're asking for? He said, Can, do you understand how you become great in my kingdom? Can you drink the cup from which I drink? Which was a symbolism that goes all the way back to Isaiah chapter 51. In Isaiah 51, it says that the Messiah will drink the cup of God's fury. And he's saying to them, really, that's what you want? You want to take on all the anger of God and wrath of God on sin that I'm going to drink for you. You want to join me in that drink? And of course they don't. So I was reading in a magazine recently and I was, they were saying, have you tried this yet? You need to try this. And I'm like, okay, so what is it? Well, everyone's doing it. Of course, I'm interested. If everyone's doing it, why not me? And I read and I said, do you drink apple cider vinegar, pure apple cider vinegar with mother? Okay, now if you don't know what mother is and apple cider vinegar, just... Buy a jar of apple cider vinegar. If it looks like a three-year-old drank out of it and half their dinner is still in it, you have the right kind. It's got all these floaties and all this stuff in it that's supposed to be good for you. Well, I heard what it said, and it said, you need to drink eight ounces of apple cider vinegar every day. Don't. Because I didn't pay attention to the instructions on the bottle. What it actually says is put two ounces of apple cider vinegar in eight ounces of water. You need to read carefully, people. You need to read carefully because that morning I drank from the cup of God's fury. I drank eight ounces of undiluted apple cider vinegar. I'll tell you, it works. For eight days it worked. Don't do it. You follow the proper instructions, it's a good thing. It was horrible. My whole body shook. Like when I was a kid, the first time I ever drank NyQuil, and I had the first time I had that alcohol in my body, and I thought, why? I would rather have a cold. Jesus said to them, can you drink of this cup? And they were like, yeah. No. No human being could because of sin. That wrath was poured out on Jesus because he was the one sent to accept it. Because God knew we couldn't. Then he says, can you be baptized with the baptism? He's not talking about water baptism. He's actually talking about being immersed in what would take place. It was what would make him on the cross cry out, God, where have you gone? You've left me. For the first time in Jesus' awareness, God was not with him. He cried out and he said to them, can you handle that? And look at verse 39, we can, they answered. And Jesus said, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left hand is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for who they've been prepared. You see, Jesus was prophetic here. He was gentle, but he was prophetic. And here's why. James would be the first disciple killed for following Jesus. And John would be the last one killed for following Jesus. Jesus said, yes, you will. You will accept my wrath, or you will accept the wrath of God, and you will receive that by suffering. You see, Jesus said... I can't give you those chairs, you earn them. And you earn your place in the kingdom by suffering. Not by glory, not by power, not by authority. You gain them by suffering. He said, do you understand that you don't become great in my kingdom by what you receive, you become great in my kingdom by what you offer. They outpromise their abilities. The world rewards selfish ambition. It can get you places. And a boastful overconfidence can get people to give you opportunities. But it's also defined by a very ugly competitiveness in our world. In verse 41, when the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. I like that word, indignant. They were like, ah, 
dude. But I wonder, were they mad because James and John asked? Or were they mad because James and John asked first? Do you see the difference? Were they mad because this was an arrogant positioning? Or were they mad because they didn't think of it first? How dare James and John think that they were better and receive this spot and It still happens today. I want to be very, very cautious, but it happens today. And unfortunately, before we look at the disciples and go, how could those knuckleheads not get it? Then let me ask the question today. How can churches in America not get it? In this hyper-competitive culture where people are actually, instead of boasting about the one church is gathered to worship, we boast about pastors and worship and buildings and location and size. May God have mercy on all of us if we do this. We are not in competition with churches. We're in competition with the world that is selling a bill of goods none of us can pay and offering garbage instead of life. And yet we live in a world today that even disciples of Jesus today are still trying to position themselves to appear greater and better with celebrity this and celebrity that and popular this and popular that. And may God forgive us for trying. It's all about lifting Jesus Christ up because he says if we lift him up then he does the drawing he will draw all men to himself if we will do what we can do and instead of being in this hyper competitive selfish ambition and over promising our abilities if we simply humble ourselves under Jesus Christ it all comes together his perfect way see the world rewards one style and Jesus says I'm going to show you the other way how do you find greatness in his kingdom Verse 42, Jesus called them together and he said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercise authority over them? Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant and whoever wants to be first must be the slave of all. For even the son of man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What's powerful for me about this particular section of scripture we just read is that Jesus brought together those who tried to stand apart. He's good at that. Two of them walked away from the ten, and the ten were mad that the two thought they were better, and Jesus got them all together and reminded them that, no, it is unity that will build his kingdom, not division and not separate individualism. He brings them together, and he says in verse 43, you know how this world works. You've seen how Rome is operating. You see how Herod is operating. You see how the government officials are operating. And within just a matter of roughly, I'm estimating, roughly 10-day period of time from the time Jesus says this until he's crucified, they will see it demonstrated that power does not answer to anybody. Power does what it wants, and Jesus will be tried and falsely accused and falsely convicted and falsely brutalized and they would realize what authority and power in our world does when it's unbridled but jesus says in verse 43 not so with you he would say in john 18 verse 36 said my kingdom is not of this world so is is desiring to make a difference wrong absolutely not we find it in scripture in second corinthians verse 5 or chapter 5 verse 9 paul says so we make it our goal to please god whether we are at home in the body or away from me. No, no, I live on purpose. I have a reason, and it's to be influential, but not to be influential so I'm noticed. It's to be influential so he's noticed. In fact, Paul would say at the end of his life, I finished the course, I kept the face, I ran the race. Now there will be laid up for me a crown. It's beautiful imagery. God will reward us for what we offer him. I don't know why he does it. We should offer it to him because 
It's his anyway. But he says, no, no, I will, I will honor you for offering it to me. In fact, the book of Revelation, the final revelation that God gave John that we have in our Bible, shows over and over that God is going to give crowns to those who honor him and serve him and love him. And he's going to give us these crowns. He's going to make us sons and daughters of the king. And we're going to be joint heirs with Jesus. And we're going to receive these things, not because we've earned them, but because we've offered him what he asked. We did what was right. We loved mercy and we walked humbly. And yet the beautiful piece in the book of Revelation is that when Jesus comes in the room, all of us will take our crowns off and set them at his feet. And we'll realize our crowns will not be worn because the only one who deserves to wear a crown is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And it's a beautiful moment. And there's nothing wrong with having an ambition to polish the crown of Jesus so all the world sees it. And so in light of that, Jesus says, you want to be great? Serve. Become a slave to all. And he, he did this for us. I just want to conclude this morning by walking you through that Jesus is asking us to see greatness in how he lived. Well, the world says selfish ambition will get you places, yet Jesus lived out selfless ambition. Philippians chapter 2 is a powerful passage to, to study. And Philippians 2 says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Jesus showed us, what, showed us what selfless ambition does. It changes lives. Selfish ambition might change one life. Selfless ambition changes the future of generations. He lived out of an absolute sacrifice for others rather than a spirit of competitiveness. Verses 5 through 8 of Philippians 2. Your attitude should be the same as Christ Jesus who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. When I was doing my master's work at Central Michigan University back in Mount Pleasant, Michigan in the early 90s, I walked into a building, a communication building, and, and it was named Bellows Hall, and I said to one of my professors, he was my advisor, and I said, so who's this building named after? And he gave me this profound answer. I don't know. I was like, really? You work here? And he goes, yeah, I have no idea. Somebody donated money to the college. They got their name put on the building, and which was a noble gesture. And, and I was grateful that building was there. It allowed me to get a good education and receive my master's degree, but nobody could remember his name. And at one point in time, there was a ceremony. There was a ribbon cutting, and everybody knew who Mr. Bellows or Mrs. Bellows or both of them were. They didn't name more. There's a bridge in Washington, D.C. that I hope we never forget. It's called the Arlen D. Williams Bridge. In 1982, Flight 90 Air Florida took off from Washington National Airport to return to Florida. <clears throat> it was an icy, cold morning, and it, the plane began to lose altitude almost at the beginning of its takeoff, and it crashed into the 14th Street Bridge in Washington, D.C. and went into the river. The, the plane broke into three pieces. The two front pieces went under the icy water immediately and there were no survivors. Six people were able to crawl out of the tail section of the airplane as it was in the cold Potomac 
uh, river, and it was so cold, in fact, that a rescue diver jumped in, just a rescue person, jumped in the water to try to get out there. Within two minutes, they had to pull him out of the water. He spent 10 days in the hospital. The water was so shockingly cold that no one could survive it. They tried to establish ladders across the ice to get to where the plane was, but it wasn't working, so they got a helicopter to come in. The helicopter had a rope ladder, and it dropped down a ring buoy, and they were hoping to get the six people out. Well, the, the ring buoy landed in the arms of a man named Arlen Williams, 45-year-old Floridian who just happened to be on that flight returning back to his home. And when he grabbed, salvation fell to him. And he grabbed a life ring and he handed it to a lady who had broken both of her legs. And he secured her in it and they lifted her up to the helicopter. And they dropped the ring buoy again and it landed again right in front of Arlen Williams. And instead of grabbing it for himself, he put the second person in. Then he put the third person, fourth person, and fifth person. They got the fifth person in the helicopter and they dropped the ring buoy one more time, but there was no one down there. Arlen Williams had slipped into the water and died that day. Nobody knew what had taken place until the five people got into the hospital and began to tell the story to the reporters and they began to piece the story together. Every single one of them should have died in that flight and in that water, but Arlen Williams refused to take the ring for himself and he handed the ring of life to five different people and they live today. The bridge is named after that man and we don't know his story and those are the stories we should know. It's not the people on People magazine. It's not the people who accomplish all of these riches and fame. It's people like this. He had the ring of salvation in his hands, and he handed it off to someone else. And if you don't think that's a depiction of the gospel, you've not been paying attention. Jesus did the exact same thing, didn't he? He had the ring of life in his hands, and instead of using it for himself, Philippians says, he handed it off to you and you and you and you and then me. And the entire time knowing that every time he handed off that ring of life, He was going to die. And so he went to the cross, and he went up on the cross, and he gave his life. He handed us the ring of life that we may escape what was our condition. And he traded places with us. He lived out a confidence in God's plan, not in man's plan to elevate him, but God's plan. Verse 9. Therefore God exalted himself to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, he not only handed the ring off to us, but he showed us an example of what it is to hand off our lives to others that they might know life. To serve, to become slaves, to give away what we can so that others will know the one who's changed our gifts. You see, Jesus didn't save me so I could become greater. Jesus saved me so I could find peace in his greatness. And our world awards personal greatness. And the kingdom rewards unity around the greatness of Jesus. Around this room are four tables. You'll see the lamps in the corners. You can identify them. Our elders are there now, and some of our staff are available to pray with you this morning. Maybe you've never accepted what Jesus offered you. You've never taken the ring of life. You've never put it on and allowed him to rescue you. Or maybe you're just someone right now who feels alone and desperate. You just need to be reminded of how much he believes in you. When the world says you're not great, Jesus says greatness is in serving. It's in loving. It's in sacrificing. See, Jesus gave his life as a ransom for many. And he's asked us to give our lives away on this side 
so that we might have crowns one day that we lay at his feet for what we've done. We don't normally do this. In fact, I've embarrassed him twice and his mom told him to tell me not to do it again, but she's not here, so I'm going to do it again. Many of you will remember Brock Gobin, who's back with us. He lives in New York City for the longest time. He's, he grew up in this church. He was a part of our worship team before. His beautiful voice he uses for God, leading worship in his church in New York and teaching fourth grade in Harlem, New York. He's a wonderful person and a part of our family. And we have saw him last time he was here and we're like, dude, you need to sing for us. And he goes, yeah, yeah. And we're like, next time you're back. And so he couldn't escape us. And he's come back to lead us in worship this morning. We've asked him to sing a song that I've chosen following this message. It's a ch- song of the history of this church. It makes me tear up every time we sing it. And it'd be easy to, to listen to Brock sing it so well, but I'm going to ask you to join me this morning in a profession of our faith that this old rugged cross is not a thing of the past. It is the most humbling moment of our lives and there's power in that where we humble ourselves before God and learn to live a life that's going to matter far beyond what this world rewards. And if you need to make a decision this morning, go to the tables. We'd love to meet you there. Let's stand and join Brock as he leads us in worship. Thanks again for checking out this podcast. We hope this teaching helped you to discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. For more resources or to learn about Christ Church in general, visit us online at cco.church.